I know there's a lot of press clippings around, you know, how smart VCs are. We like to, you know, say how smart we are, but the truth is, is, you know, we, you know, are wrong more often than we're right. It's just that when we're right, um, the magnitude by which we are right at can cover all those, you know, other mistakes. Brett, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Demo Day. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Brett, you have been a venture capitalist at Sway now for over six years, and you've had the opportunity to really see the ebbs and the flows. You've been through different technologies, different paradigm shifts. And the one question that I wanted to start with is, why are you so passionate about venture capital? Why, why have you chosen this to be your life's passion and career? Yeah. So this all goes back to you know, my first job basically coming out of college. I, I worked at an early stage tech startup. Um, there were three co-founders and I was the first outside employee, uh, literally number four uh, on the team. And I just loved the startup culture. Um, I got to work on everything in the business other than actually write code. Um, so everything from finance to marketing to being chief janitor, you name it, I probably did it. Um, and I, I love the fact that I was working in an area with uh, I actually had a material impact on the business and it, I wasn't just another cog in a wheel in a big organization. Um, and so I just had this passion for early stage tech um, and kind of earlier the better. Uh, and so after that startup sold, uh, we went and started a second one. Um, and that was when I we raised a little bit of money on that second one. That was my first exposure to venture. and. To this date, I don't remember that meeting, what was said. I, the, the thing that always stuck with me was coming out of that meeting. Uh, all I could think about was like, well, how do you get that job? Um, because I realized, you know, if they're talking to me, they're talking to a whole bunch of different uh, early stage tech startups. They're talking to, um, they're learning about different industries, new technologies, uh, and that, you know, ability to kind of be you know, when you're in a startup, you're, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep and, you know, you're all encompassed. Everything is about, you know, that, that startup. Whereas, you know, venture, we get to work in a number of different industries, uh, a number of different startups, different technologies. And so we're more, you know, a mile wide and, you know, an inch deep and that constant learning, that constant um, challenge of, you know, trying to think through the, you know, how things are going to impact in the future. Uh, the constant uh, challenge of trying to solve another problem or help solve a problem for an entrepreneur. Um, that's what gets me really excited. And, and that's the part I love most about this job. Uh, I'm really excited to learn more about, you know, what you do day to day. And, and even now, I mean, we're, we're right in the midst of what feels like, you know, a, an episode of Black Mirror, right? We're, we're now weeks yeah. into quarantine and I've been so interested to learn about the psychology of a venture capitalist in this time, because, you know, a lot of the uh, VCs that we've had on the show talk a lot about conviction investing and how you really have to believe in the investments. You have to believe with all of your heart. And I just find it so difficult to be in your shoes, to have that conviction and to have that trust when it's so difficult for you really to feel the the energy of the people sitting across the table from you. So I'm really excited to learn more about that side. But I, I thought maybe we could start by just getting a little bit more understanding around your background, where you grew up. Are, are you from the Los Angeles area? Or did you eventually come down here? 
Uh, yeah, no, I mean, first of all, you know, if you think it's difficult for us, it's, you know, way more difficult for the entrepreneurs. Um, and, and, you know, our job is to support them and, and help guide them through as best we can. But, uh, you know, as, as crazy as it is for us, it's, you know, even crazier uh, in the portfolio companies themselves. So we try never to forget that having walked in, you know, those shoes before. Yeah. Um, but I did grow up in L.A., um, went to Chatsworth High School. Um, uh Grew up in the LA, you know, the San Fernando Valley, uh, and decided to go to Cal uh, to go play. Uh, so I played baseball all the way through college, um, and I wanted to go to the best academic school I could go to, as well as the best uh, sports or baseball program I could find as well. Um, the Pac-12 has historically been the best league uh, in all of college baseball, and Cal is a you know a extremely good uh, academic school. So it was a perfect marriage for me at the time. Um, and you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot of, you know, tech interest per se, you know, growing up, I, you know, I was an athlete, I played a number of different sports and, you know, but had never spent a whole lot of time in the Bay area. And obviously going to Cal, uh, kind of opened up my eyes a lot to that, um, ended up working in the Bay area for seven, eight years, uh, and eventually made my way back down to LA. Um, and that's when I started to realize, you know, for as established, uh, as an ecosystem as the Bay area was, LA was, you know, really growing at that time. Mm. And, you know, there are a number of investors that have been doing this, you know, a lot longer than I have down here in LA, um, you know, when LA was, you know, much smaller. Um, and, you know, I feel like I'm seeing the fruits of a lot of their labor uh, and getting a chance to kind of piggyback off a lot of work, you know, that people have done over the last 10 years, uh, 20 years, um, and, and just, you know, take advantage of, you know, this growing ecosystem. Now, can for those that, you know, have just started to learn about the LA ecosystem or have just launched an accelerator, just launched a fund in the last three, four years, can you give us kind of an insight? Like, what was it like when you first got down here? And, and what, what was the tech ecosystem like when you first arrived? So it was definitely established, but, you know, I would say smaller than it was today. Um, you know, the Bay Area you know, is still kind of the epicenter of the industry, but there's so much capital up there um, and so much sharp el elbows that LA just feels a lot more collaborative. Um, you know, we have to, you know, fight and claw for deals um, and allocation up in the Bay Area, whereas it feels like in LA, everyone wants to, you know, work together, um, you know, wants to syndicate. Uh, and, and it just, it's a much more collaborative environment. The other thing I noticed is, you know, when I first started, no engineer, nobody from the Bay Area wanted to move down to LA. It was considered career suicide to move out of the Bay Area. Um, and that has done a complete 180 since I have joined Sway and that not only are engineers willing to come down to LA, they're, they're actively looking to do so. Um, how you know, how just, come is it? Because like, you know, one of the conversations that gets brought up about the Bay is that it's such tight knit circles up there that you, you pretty much like you can't go to a bar or a restaurant or anything without true. running into a group of Uber employees or Facebook employees or Google. And so, you know, I could imagine that there's some like it's nice almost to get out of that scene and come to a place where there's music. And I mean, of course, San Fran has that. But do you think it's more that they're trying to get away from those clicky circles or do you think it's because LA has different opportunities that San Fran doesn't have to offer all the above um look it, 
you know, LA's got, you know, great weather, uh, a lot of diversity, um, a lot of diverse industries. Uh, you know, you've got the aerospace, you've got media, you've got e-commerce, you've got, um, you know, some strong tech talent down here as well. Um, and I think there's just a, a view, you know, it's a lot cheaper. I mean, LA is still relatively an expensive city compared to most of the United States, but it's definitely cheaper than the Bay Area. Um, I just think the quality of life is, is probably better down in LA and in Southern California in general. Uh, and I think, you know, this generation is, you know, is much about, you know, experiences and quality of life, um, you know, and it's not just all about, you know, pure dollars. Uh, and so I think it's a broader consideration set that they're taking into. Uh, and they're not just, you know, trying to chase the, the top dollar. It, it's, a, it's a much more holistic view that, you know, I, I'm seeing uh, um, engineers and entrepreneurs take. Do you still feel like it's career suicide? Meaning like if you are a, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old that knows they want to be an engineer, that you know you want to work for, you know, a great organization, do you still feel like it's almost like, you have to go through the Bay in order to attain those goals? Or are you seeing bright spots happening here in Los Angeles that can are almost changing that narrative? I, I think there's bright spots, not just in LA, but across the country. I think, you know, if I'm, you know, coming out of high school, college, I'm looking for, you know, a great company, regardless of geography. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got some wonderful, you know, great companies down here in LA. You've got some, you know, amazing companies. Uh, in Austin, in Denver, in Salt Lake City, um, in Seattle, there's there's a lot of different locations that just have some fantastic companies. Um, you know, there's also New York and Boston. Um, so you know, yeah, you know, in terms of amount of capital, the the Bay Area still has you know the most there, probably the most depth of experience um, compared to other geographies. But by no means is it you know career suicide to go anywhere else. Um, you absolutely can build an incredible business or join an incredible business, I think, anywhere uh, these days. Now, going back to kind of, you know, earlier, earlier days of Brett, how would your teachers describe you in elementary school, like growing up? Were you always just athletic through and through? Or did you have other hobbies? Uh, you know, yeah. So how, how would your professors or how would your teachers describe you back in the day? Uh I was a, a mix of different things. I, you know, I always played sports growing up and I was always on the baseball team, played basketball a little bit, um, did, you know, played a number of different sports. Um, but I also was also a nerd at heart too. Uh, you know, I liked art and drawing. Um, I liked uh, video games. Um, I liked comic books. Uh, so I kind of had a split uh, personality or split interest uh, as it were, in terms of, you know, the kind of nerdy side and, and the sports side and, and kind of had friends in both worlds. Um, and so growing up, I always, you know, was I was running in different circles constantly. I, I never had a, you know, one click um, that I, you know, always hung out with. Um, so it was, it, I always had a lot of different interests. And, and I think that has probably served me well. Um, I feel like I can, you know, communicate with a number of different type of people, you know, whether it be engineers or salespeople or whatever, um, you know, I can communicate and, and, you know, we can geek out on something or we can, you know, go down the rabbit hole of sports. I, I, I've got a little, I can talk about a little bit of a lot of things. 
um, which I think helps. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like, you know, I love asking guests on our show, like, you know, how would teachers or, uh, you know, mentors describe you early because you can kind of see those pick back up again later in life, right? Like now doing what you're doing, you can't just be all in on fintech. You have to be able to communicate with people that are in e-commerce or doing, you know, uh, B2B SaaS or software. And so seeing, uh, you know, how you were back then now coming back to play, as you said, is it's really interesting. Um, how did you know that you wanted to go to Berkeley or like what, I I know that sports played a big role in that, but what, what ended up making that be the final decision? It was a combination of, I wanted, you know, I always wanted to pit myself against the best. Um, I'm very competitive. Uh, even today, it doesn't matter what, you know, we're doing. I'm, I want to win. Uh, and so I wanted to go to the best academic school I could. And I wanted to go play in the PAC 12. Well, it was at that time, the PAC 10, uh, because it was by far the best, uh, college baseball league, uh, in the nation. Um, and so I had a chance to go play against, you know, a number of players I went on to play professional baseball. Um, at one point I knew this was a few years ago, but I knew, I think at least someone on 28 of the 30 teams, um, yeah, uh, that I'd played with or against and had some story about, I couldn't watch a game without, you know, having a story about, you know, that time I faced that pitcher, uh, we played his team or whatever it was. Um, but at the same time I wanted to go to a top academic institution because I wasn't highly recruited. I walked on at Cal and, and I, you know, as much as I would have loved to have made that my career at that time, um, there wasn't a guarantee that I was, you know, talented enough to, to make it to the pros. So I, I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. I wanted to make sure I got, you know, the best education I could get uh, as well as, um, you know, the best, you know, competitive landscape in, in terms of uh, playing ball. And so that narrowed the, the the number of schools that, you know, I wanted to apply to. I mean, it, it was just a handful. Um, and, and, you know, Berkeley, you know, fortunately enough, I, I got in academically. Um, you know, I walked on. And what's I, that uh, process I like? Also... Like, like, I, I don't even when you're when you're a freshman and you quote unquote walk on like what what exactly is that you just show up in the coach's office and say, hey, like, I want to play for you guys? Or how does that even work? Fortunately, I, I mean, yes, fortunately, I had a scout uh, in the LA area that knew the head coach of Cal. And so I at least had a good word. And, and I basically walked on and, and the deal was for the first semester, I was on the team and no guarantees after that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I got I caught a break and, you know, we had uh, the starting shortstop who went on to get drafted that year. Uh, he was coming off an injury. Um, my class that year, that incoming freshman class was a top 10 recruiting class in the nation. Um, and so I walked on with a bunch of really good players that would go on and get drafted, um, much more talented than me. And, and for, I got caught another break. One of them got injured. So I got a lot more playing time, uh, just in practice. than I think I otherwise would have, um, and just hustled enough to earn a spot on the team. And, um, and you played halfway through played uh i played shortstop my junior and senior year uh, i played third and second my freshman and sophomore year um and i uh yeah I, by middle of my freshman year i was starting um and, and kind of started my freshman year uh 
yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. Now, from from my recollection, I'm I've never I've always played baseball growing up, but have never you know played it to uh, uh, you know that very high collegiate level. Shortstop is always a leadership position. It's it's right is is shortstop. From my understanding, it's the position that really ties the team together. Uh, my question to you is: now that you've had time to like reflect on baseball and like what that time in your life meant to you, and now that you have all of this time to see these amazing teams, what did you take away? Or like, what are some of the learnings that you took away from baseball that you now kind of are bringing back into your life later on, whether it from be from a leadership perspective or what does it mean to be a great team? What has baseball taught you about venture capital? Yeah, there's a lot of correlations. The first is, you know, baseball, if you know, you, if you succeed three out of 10 times, right, you're a hall of famer. Um, you know, venture is very similar, right? You're I've never heard that. Ventures yeah. driven by the power law. Um, and, you know, you're, so if you're great at, you know, baseball, you're still going to fail seven out of 10 times. Venture, we're wrong way more often than we're right. I, I know there's a lot of press clippings around, you know, how smart VCs are. We like to, you know, say how smart we are. But the truth is, is, you know, we, you know, are wrong more often than we're right. It's just that when we're right, um, the magnitude by which we are right at can cover all those, you know, other mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm not afraid to fail. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to, you know, take a chance and take a risk. Um, and, you know, I think that mentality, you know, it's okay if I fail, I can, I can, you know, good, I'm going to get them the next time is, you know, very much a mentality I've always had, um, kind of had to have playing, playing baseball. Um, and then, you know, the team component, right? Baseball is, you know, very much a team-oriented game, um, but you've got to be able to pull your weight too. And it's almost similar to a venture firm, right? Where, um, you know, you're, you know, football, whereas, you know, you're going to throw the ball to someone else and he has to catch it. Baseball, you're kind of up there on your own, but you're still dependent on everybody else. So you've got to put in the work. You've got to make yourself as good as you can. You've got to do um, everything you can to be at the top of your game. Uh, and then when you can, you've got to be able to support others. Um, and so I think those are the two biggest lessons yeah. uh, walking away from baseball that are, I think, most directly correlated to, to venture. Were, was there a moment in college when you thought to yourself, I want to be, I, I know that you jumped into business first, but uh, what, what was your path to VC from a, a mentality perspective, you know, like how did you transition yeah. from school and then eventually get into to VC and Sway? So I had uh, almost no clue about what venture was coming out of college. I, I I talked to students and interns today, and they're so far ahead of where I was at that time. Um, I knew I did not want to go work in consulting, in iBanking, um, which, you know, at that time, most of my colleagues did. I, I, you know, it wasn't cool. It wasn't sexy to go work at a startup um, or a tech company. Uh, and so it was, um, I knew what I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew wherever I wanted to go, I wanted to be able to have an impact. I didn't want to be buried between or behind uh, you know, a ton of bureaucracy, of, you know, a bunch of red tape. I wanted to be able to do things that actually mattered in an organization. Um, I wanted, you know, I'm not, oh, I, I don't know if I would be the greatest uh, big company employee. I'm very much like, you know, if I see something, I'm going to go get it done type of person. Uh, and, you know, my mentality, my, you know, I like fast paced environments. Um, 
that mentality fit well in the startup environment. Uh, whereas, you know, if you saw some saw a problem or saw an issue, you just went and solved it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of there's nobody else to go do it. Um, and so that's where I kind of just fell in love with the tech startup, you know, ecosystem and, and, you know, how you go about building companies and, you know, having real impact, um, from day one. Uh, and it wasn't until the second startup where I started to learn about venture capital and, and we raised a little bit of money, um, not much, but, uh, it was at that point is when I was my first exposure to vent venture. And it wasn't until then that it was like, well, okay, that that's an interesting job, but it wouldn't be, you know, it always was filed away in the back of my mind, but it wouldn't be for, God, you know, another five, six years later where um, I'd get a chance at uh, at pursuing that. Now, now, I know that you started out as an associate and then became a principal. For those that, that don't really understand the difference in terminology, can you help, uh, you know, the listeners, including myself, just... What does it mean to be an associate? What does it mean to be a principal? And, and how are they different from one another, if different at all? It, yeah, every venture fund does this slightly differently. But uh, in general, uh, you know, the bottom is, you know, an analyst. This is typically right out of undergrad. Um, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, if you're at a bigger fund, you're cold calling. You know, if you're investing at the Series B, every time there's a big Series A announcement, right, they're trying to get in touch with, you know, that Series A company um so it's like deal at, sourcing you know, mostly at, at an yeah uh, you might be doing research on the market it's you know it's it's very much an analyst type of position Got it. um associates kind of that you know next rung up um depending on the firm um you know you could have different roles maybe you're starting to get on a deal team a little bit principal is the next rung up after that and that's kind of the one right below partner right and then partners kind of, you know, there's general partners, there's managing directors, they, they kind of splice that up a little bit different way, differently. But um, the way I describe my job at a high level is, uh, so I work with each of our, uh, our, our partners, um, all four of them. And, you know, I tend to do a lot of the behind the scenes work mm -hmm. to make them look good. Um, that could be anything from sourcing companies, uh, and trying to be the champion within our organization uh, and, and trying to convince, you know, one or two partners to get excited about a deal uh, to uh, actually spearheading the diligence on a, uh, on a company that we're interested in investing in. Um, I'm oftentimes in the middle of, you know, actually executing the transaction, whether, you know, negotiating, working with the lawyers, issuing the term sheets, building the cap table, all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, there's a few companies that I work with, uh, primarily, uh, after we've made the investment and then there's a bunch of back office, you know, not so sexy, glamorous stuff that, um, you know, we have to do for reporting to LPs and, and all that. So, um, I get to touch a little bit of every part of the business, um, which has just been an unbelievable education <laughs> experience for me, uh, over the last six years is, you know, really getting to understand, the full scope of what it means to be a, a venture uh, or a VC. Um, you know, it's not just, oh, pick a company and invest, right? Yeah. There's portfolio management, there's, you know, LP communication. There's, there's so much more that goes into this uh, that, you know, it really, you know, the, it really is um, an apprenticeship type of business uh, because it's, you know, what everyone sees is, oh, you, you know, you get to meet with entrepreneurs and then you get to cut them a check. Um, 
and and while we do do that, it there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, even more than just, you know, kind of angel investing when you're in charge of other people's money and not just your own, there's a lot more accountability uh, that comes with that responsibility. Uh, and so learning all those different facets of the business has just been uh, an incredible educational experience for me over the last six years, uh, not to mention getting to work with just a numerous uh, number of phenomenal companies. I, I can imagine now. Uh, there's there's different takes on how venture funds invest their money like some are thesis driven some you know are uh you know mission driven uh, does sway have kind of any realm in which they really try to focus on or are you guys more of a broad fund that invests in you know kind of a wider range of 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 startups yeah so it's evolved a lot um over the years when from when you first started launched yeah, yeah, so I, I joined about a year after we originally launched the first fund. Wow. And at that time, we were, you know, the the original idea was to be a 50-50 split between consumer and enterprise. And what we found over the years is us just gravitating a lot more to the enterprise side. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that was we felt we could add more value on the enterprise side with introduction to clients given our network, right, and potential customers. Uh, another part of that was uh, while it's cheaper than ever to start a company, scaling a uh, consumer company these days uh, has just gotten so expensive. Um, customer acquisition channels, you know, have just become so diluted. Um, you know, if you were, you know, when I started, if you were really good on Instagram, you were really good on, you know, maybe even Facebook uh, at that time you had a marketing advantage, right? And you saw what happened with Dollar Shave Club, right? And you, you've seen a number Casper of instances. and, you know, you, you Exactly. Right. Um, today, you know, you, you whereas you could get that kind of viral loop going, today, the challenge is, is each additional marginal customer is more expensive. So customer acquisition costs, when I first started, would actually sometimes, you know, go down over time. These days, at least in consumer, we're seeing it go up. Um, just because the those channels are so flooded. Um, and so we're constantly looking for, on the consumer side, who has uh, really unique, you know, channels, you know, distribution or customer acquisition um, to do that in a very cost-efficient manner. And that's become a lot harder. On the flip side, those that can do that, uh, it becomes more defensible as well. Yeah. Um, Even more so, so for B2B, all- right? I mean, because B2B... Mm-hmm is traditionally, you know, hire a sales team, smile and die. And now they're beginning to utilize LinkedIn's ad platform. They're beginning to utilize some of these acquisition channels that, um, you know, traditionally just they, they wouldn't have the opportunity to do so. Well, yeah. And then on the B2B side, right, is we're starting to see a lot more bottoms up selling, right? Uh, you know, top sounds that traditional, right? Uh, you hire a traditional sales force and they go talk to the head of IT and it's a long sales cycle process, what we're seeing a lot more of, especially with open source, especially with, um, you know, these uh, developer tools and, and, you know, things like Slack, where they get in in the ground and and they're almost free, right? It's almost a consumer type of uh, distribution or or acquisition strategy. Um, And they kind of proliferate throughout the organization. And then then you add on the sales force on top of that and you walk into an organization and, hey, you've got 30%, 40% of your employees already using this product. That's a lot easier sell, a lot shorter time frame, um, and a very different type of selling mm. uh, than kind of the traditional method. And that 
is exploding. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of this, you know, con con consumerization of uh, B2B. Uh, and it's because it's a much more efficient sales uh, process. I was listening on one of your last podcasts talking about uh, you were going through some of the red flags that that you look out for uh, when meeting new startups. And, you know, it, it was really, um, you said something to the effect of how entrepreneurs uh, carry themselves during due diligence. You know, are they able to actually get you what you need in a timely manner? Or are they dragging their feet and making it hard for you to get what you need? And that can sometimes be an indication of how they'll actually be you know, once you've invested in them, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what you like to see in startups that you're doing due diligence on? And then maybe the contrary is like, you know, in the deals where it hasn't gone well, what, what are the red flags for you? And maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on, um, you know, what you look for and what you don't. Yeah. So this has been one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the six years is, you know, when I first started and we were doing, doing due diligence, very focused on the numbers uh, and we still are but it was all about you know market analysis and evaluating the cohorts and you know LTV to CAC ratios and you know what all you know what are the financials and breaking you know digging into the model and and while we definitely still do that um, one thing I you know started to realize and this took years um, is the entrepreneurs that you know, just ran that process smoothly, right? The ones that, you know, you say, hey, um, cool, we'd, we'd love, you know, we like what you're doing. Uh, let's, uh, you know, can you send us a data room? And they've already got 80% of the stuff you would want or would ask for already there. Um, you, you make a couple other requests and then sure, no problem, we'll get it to you next week. And then they get it to you next week. Um, any questions you have, they answer fully. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel like they're trying to, you know, skirt around it, hide an issue, skirt, yeah, skirt around an issue. They're, they're very upfront. They're transparent. Uh, they, you know, they'll be the first to recognize where a challenge is and they've already thought through how to, uh, you know, mitigate that or how they're going to overcome that. Um, those entrepreneurs, we've had a lot of success with, honestly, it, it, the ones that ran the process really well. Um, I think it's because, you know, if they're running that well, they're able to communicate well with their internal team on, you know, the vision and everything. Um, they're able to follow up with uh, customers. If you're not following up with me and I'm trying to give you money, uh, you're probably not following up with your customer base very well. Um, you know, you're probably not following up with hiring. Um, so it, it's, it's an indication of how well, they run the business just kind of in general. Um, and so as much as, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the numbers and the metrics and all that is still very, very important. Um, but I've learned to listen a lot more to kind of that spidey sense of how are, you know, how is this going, right? Um, whereas entrepreneurs that don't feel like they ever give you the full answer um, or, you know, you ask for materials and it's, we'll get it to you on Friday and it, you know, you follow up a week later and, oh yeah, yeah, no, we'll get it to you. And they give you part of what they were going to give you. And, um, you know, there, those, the times that, you know, we've gone through that, you know, and, and we were so focused on the metrics and, and, you know, the market and, or the product. Um, and, and we kind of just didn't pay as much attention to how well things were being run. Um, those are times we've had, you know, trouble. Uh, and so, as much as you know, it is about telling a good story. 
um, you know, having the metrics to back it all up, how well you kind of run that diligence process is, is part of what I'm kind of evaluating as well. It's so interesting because it, I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, sometimes founders can get so enamored by the technology that they're building or the problem that they're solving that they think that they, you know, it, this is all you need in order to secure an investment. But I, they often, I would imagine, you know, forget that this is a, this is a marriage. This is a, a partnership for a long time with this VC. And they're not just looking at the problem you're solving today because so often that problem changes and needs to evolve and it's never going to be like that forever. And so I think it's just great advice for founders to hear a VC actually say how important this process is, because I would imagine they'd say, oh, well, you know, it's fine. Like, I'll, I'll just get back to Brett in a couple of days. It's not that big of a deal. It's just X, Y, and Z. But really, that's almost one of your like super uh, powers is to assess whether or not, like, are they going to be true to their word? Are they going to do what they say they're going to do? And um, I think, you know, a lot of people maybe slide away from those those details because they just don't think it's that important. But then they hear this podcast, they hear you talking about that. It's actually one of your biggest things that you look for. And maybe that will actually change, you know, their dynamics. So I think that's amazing advice. Thank you for that. Um, what size companies I, I know that like right now, seed and series A and series B, it's like all, you know, depending all the same. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I was part of Mucker's uh, very first class in a seed or a pre-seed round. Now I've got friends getting $4 million seed rounds and it's yeah. like, what the hell's going on? Um, talk to us a little bit about like, where is Sway from a, you know, are you guys series A, series B, or do you think about it more as check size? Uh, how, how are you guys doing your investment each year? Yep. So our bread and butter is series A um, and the way we, you know, define Series A is, you know, we want to write a three to six, three to seven million dollar check, um, right? So the round size is typically a five to 10, five to 12 million dollar round, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, we, we want to try to get, you know, 15% ownership, uh, you know, 20% if we can, uh, somewhere in that range uh, when we lead a round. Uh, so you can kind of, you know, back into what those, you know, valuation ranges are. And, um, you know, we're, when we invest at Series A, it's, companies are definitely in revenue uh, most of the time. Uh, it, you know, might not be a ton of revenue, but we want to see some indication of product market fit or uh, some indication that uh, you're on your way to achieving product market fit. Um, we do do some seed investing. Uh Quite honestly, we, we, you know, part of what we do with seed is, you know, we're not necessarily uh, valuation uh, concerned or ownership targets at seed for us. It's really about, you know, getting in early with, you know, unique teams or in, in markets that we're really excited about, you know, and on hopefully being able to help out, you know, a little bit with a couple of customer introductions, uh, you know, show what we can kind of bring the table. And our hope is that, you know, when you go raise that series A, we're, you know, your first phone call, you know, and, I, and ideally you never even go to another venture capitalist. Mm. Uh, that's rare. That has happened for us. It's happened once or twice. Uh, that is rare though. Um, but we're at least at the table. We're at least, uh, you know, in the conversation, um, you know, for us that, you know, and then that diligence process is a lot easier for us at the, you know, when we go to lead around, because we've got a year, 18 months of experience kind of working with you, right? We've gotten, you know, monthly updates, 
know, maybe we've done, you know, calls once a month, um, once a quarter, whatever it is, we, we've got some track record of data points that we can go back on um, and see. And so it, it makes the diligence process a lot faster um, and a lot easier. Um, when And then oh, we occasionally will go later stage two uh, opportunistically, mainly because we've got a, a an LP base that likes to do direct deals. That's a, you know, new, you know, very much a emerging trend over the six, seven years I've been doing this. Can you yeah. talk more um, about what is a direct deal versus yeah. a non an indirect deal? So typically LPs invest in our fund, right? They give us money and then we deploy that capital and directly into startups. So we're investing directly into startups. Um, I'll, you know, there is a increasing trend of, you know, LPs not only wanting to invest in funds, but also wanting to do direct investments into, you know, startups themselves. Uh, for a number of reasons, Isn't, um, and it, it, does that does that like a, is that a conflict of interest, or does that make you guys compete against each other, even though you're kind of a part of the same team? No, no. So the the way we structure it is, you know, let's say we're leading a deal, uh, ten million dollar round, we'll put in five million. Um, you know, there's you know the in, other insiders or other VCs, maybe there's 3 million of demand there and there's 2 million left over. We've got to go, we and the company have to go fill out and finish the round. I see. Uh, we will then take that 2 million opportunity and show it to our LOPs and, and see if they uh, are interested. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll help them invest directly if, if they're interested. So we, we, we know our LOPs well enough to, we kind of know what deals that, you know, might get them excited or might not. Um, it's, you know, it's a way for them to, you know, kind of lower their fee structure, um, you know, be more concentrated into certain industries or certain companies that they really like. Um, we also have LPs that are, can be strategic advantages, uh, based on, you know, the relationships maybe it's a family they have office or... that made, yeah, that, you know, maybe it's a family office that made a bunch of money in real estate and it's a real estate, you know, technology company. Mm -hmm maybe they can open up a lot of doors in that industry. Um, and so we try to be very thoughtful about the way we go about doing it. Um, but, uh, no, the fund very much does its thing, you know, we're leading the round and then we'll bring in, you know, and this, these are conversations we'll have with the, the entrepreneur by no means are we forcing it to, to happen or, or, uh, you know, saying it, it must, you know, you have to take the money from here. It's, it's, you know, it's additive. I, I'm picturing like this because Sway does, they lead the round, but you also are a part of some investments where you're not leading the round. Is, is that true? Or do you always lead the round 100% of the time? No, we don't always lead. Um, we are very comfortable not leading so long as we can still kind of get, you know, put the dollars to work we want to we wanna deploy. Um, so if we can get, you know, a big enough allocation and there's another great VC that's leading the round that is sitting on the, you know, the board and, and they're, you know, the quote unquote lead, we're more than happy to, to, you know, be part of that round and, and let them kind of take the lead on all that. Um, but we are willing to, you know, invest with conviction and issue a term sheet and, and do all that as well. So I'm like, I'm picturing like, almost like a settlers of Catan board, like this board game where like you, you can, you can lead the round or you can not lead and be a part of, can you bring us into the, like the psychology or the strategy from a VC of like, how do you decide when you want to lead versus when you want to be a part of Like, like I just, I can't even picture um, what's the strategy behind it. 
you know, kind of like in board game lingo. Yeah. So either way, we've got to get conviction around, um, you know, that we want to invest in this company, whether we're going to lead it or not. So let's say we, you know, lead the round. Obviously, we've done our due diligence. We've done our homework. We're super excited about this company. You know, we've, we'll issue a term sheet. Um, but let's say they get competing term sheets from other VCs. Um, again, we'll take the $10 million round example. Let's say they get a $5 million, the $10 million round, $5 million from another great VC. And, you know, they come to us and say, hey, I'm going to take that, you know, their term sheet. Okay, well, you know, we still want to put in three to $4 million of the round, um, you know, and then maybe you get one or two from, you know, the existing insiders. Uh, and all of a sudden that round's done. Uh, and the entrepreneur doesn't have to go fin- fill it out. Um, that That's a situation where we've already done our homework. We've already had the conviction. Uh, and now we're just, you know, filling out the rest of that round and making it easy for the entrepreneur mm-hmm. to get back to building their business. And then, and then what about the flip side? Like what are the advantages or the pros to being the lead of a round? Uh, uh, you know, a number of things. One is, um, you know, we are the investor of record, basically. So when you're the lead, you, you know, um, it, it, to us, it's, it's much more about than just, you know, the terms at which uh, the deal gets done, right? It's, you know, now once that deal is done and consummated and, you know, the money hits the bank, uh, we're the ones, you know, responsible. You know, we're likely sitting on a board, right? We're, um, if there's a follow-on financing you know, we're going to help spearhead that. If there is, uh, you know, a hiring effort, you know, that we can help interview or help close candidates, we'll, we'll be the first to step in. Um, there's just, I think, extra uh, additional responsibility that comes with being the lead, which, you know, is more work, but it's also incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly, you develop great relationships um, with these entrepreneurs and with the teams and um, it's it's very satisfying to, to do that work uh, and it's you know something that you know a lot of us at Sway are former operators or entrepreneurs and um, you know it's the work we you know want to do and, and it's you know, we think it's what helps sets us apart I know a lot of VCs talk about you know quote-unquote value add and you know all the things they do and you know, there's some that do a remarkable job and there's others that it's just lip service mm-hmm. and uh, we want it hopefully to be more than just lip service now i know that you know right now as you'd mentioned at the beginning of the podcast there's so many startups struggling through uh this period of time right now and and i mean thousands, hundreds of thousands with their health, really, really struggling, but focusing more from a business perspective, how has COVID either changed how your day-to-day is when it comes to meeting companies or doing due diligence, or uh, has there been any change in sort of how you operate knowing that uh, we're in kind of this really, you know, you know, rough time right now? What's, what's your perspective or your POV on this? Uh, I mean, there's definitely been a change, right? And this is not normal. Um, anyone that, you know, says, you know, business as usual, I think is is not telling the full story. Mm. Uh, you know, end of February, early March, you know, obviously as this started to come down, you know, the first thing we did was, you know, did a deep dive on every one of our portfolio companies where we, um, you know, we had Q4 metrics because Q1 hadn't come out yet. Um, and we basically took every one of those uh, metrics from each one of our companies and, you know, all right, 
let's make some assumptions about revenue and, and how that's going to grow. Basically, if it's flat, if it drops by a third, if it drops by 50%, maybe it goes to zero. Um, when's our cash out date, right? Uh, how much runway does each company have? And then we overlaid, uh, you know, kind of the operating expenses on that. So what if we made 10%, 20%, 50% cuts? How much runway would that buy us? Um, and we basically built this matrix, you know, across time, you know, for over a two-year period um, for each one of our, you know, companies that, you know, we're, we're the lead investor on and we've taken, you know, kind of this platform type of investment. And so we then were able to go back out to, to each of our companies. I mean, first and foremost, you know, how's everyone doing, right? Is everyone yeah. safe? How, you know, how can we help, you know, adjust to working from home? Um, fortunately, you know, a lot of our companies are software companies. So, you know, there's, there is a transition, but it's, you know, doable. Um, and then, and then the second step is, all right, you know, a lot of what we've talked about with every one of our portfolio companies is making sure they have at least runway through the end of the year and into 2021. Um, and, you know, we were able to walk into those conversations with already, uh, you know, maybe we weren't exactly spot on, right? Uh, maybe we were off by a month or two, but we were in the ballpark and we kind of understood, you know, what would happen under different scenarios uh, to their top line revenue if, uh, you know, what how big of cuts they might need to take. And, and frankly, you know, the good entrepreneurs, the good founders, the CEOs already had done it too. So it was, we were, our, we were having conversations, you know, really early, um, just having those kind of hard decisions when, you know, what might need to happen, um, how, how do we plan, how do we adjust? And, and we were kind of working off the same playbook. It was fortunate. It's, it's been, uh, as tough as this time has been, it's been unbelievably inspiring the the leadership and the the resilience that you know many of our portfolio companies and CEOs and all the employees have, have just shown and banded together and uh, gonna try to figure this out. Um, it's it's pretty amazing to sit back and and see this kind of happen real time. Have you seen any threads of leadership or any threads of personality traits that are really rising to the occasion? I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was John Doerr in, in his book, Measure What Matters, but he said something to the effect of, you know, bad companies will die in a, in a, you know, tough times, good companies will survive and great companies will actually, you know, thrive and, and move and become a much better version of themselves. Has there been any thread that you've seen of those that, you know, you really admire the most in your portfolio companies? Uh, you know, there's, there's always different styles. And I think every entrepreneur has to be true and authentic to their own style. Um, but the transparency, right? I, it, everyone knows what's going on. It's, it's no secret. And, and the CEOs that have confronted that head on with their teams, um, hey, this is, this is real. This is happening. Here's our impact. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we expect to maybe happen. Um, those entrepreneurs, the ones that haven't run from, you know, the reality of the situation that have been transparent with their teams have been upfront, um, have over communicated. Uh, those are the ones that, you know, the team feels like they're bought in and, and, and that they're banding together. Right. Um, you know, it, it's amazing what happens in a crisis, how well people will come together, but they've got to feel like there's, you know, a mission or a vision or, or leadership is, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is try to pretend like nothing's wrong. Um, 
because everyone knows that you know this is not normal. This is not business as usual. Uh, hopefully, we will get back to you know some state of normalcy, you know, in the not too distant future. But uh, the the ones that have just tackled this head on um, and have been transparent to their team, uh, I I feel like are the ones that are you know finding a way to to really make the most of the situation. What have you learned about yourself going through this situation? Because like, I can't even imagine, I mean, some of the conversations you and your uh, team have had have been tough. And some have probably been hard, just gut wrenching, you know, having to really make the hard decisions, you know, what, what I was it Ben Horowitz, the hard thing about hard things, I can imagine like a lot of your guys's day to day. Great book. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about yourself going through this over the last couple of weeks? You know, it, it, it's been difficult, but again, like as difficult as it is for us, uh, it's 10 times more difficult for, for each of these teams. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're the ones really on the front line and, and we're doing everything we can to support around getting information about the PPP program, right? Or... Um, is that what Mark Schuster how, was talking about recently? I, I saw him post some some slides on the PPP. Yeah, account. there's been a lot of yeah, there's been a lot of information out. We've been talking to a ton of lawyers, um, trying to just get as much you know because if, if each one of these entrepreneurs have to go figure it out themselves, right? That that doesn't scale. If if we can figure it out and then distribute you know across all of our portfolio companies, we then. Um, can, you know, we can provide much more leverage in that situation, uh, and we can do a lot of the work for them. Um, so yeah, I've, <laughs> I'm all of a sudden uh, an expert on SBA loans. All of a sudden, um, in the last two or three weeks, it's crazy. Um, never, never thought I would be doing that, but you know, that's what's been needed. Um, and and really, that's been the the core is is just jumping in in whatever fashion we need to do to to support. Um, some of talking about, you know, how, you know, whether it's, you know, layoffs, how you go about doing that. Um, you know, I was at an organization where we had to go through a riff and I, you know, personally had to do that. So I've, I've been able to, I've got empathy for that situation because yeah. I've lived through that. Um, and I also know, you know, I did some things well, but I, we made some mistakes in that situation too. So I'm able to at least provide some real advice, um, you know, it's, it's talking about, you know, they're asking questions on the funding landscape or, you know, how long is this going to last or how, you know, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty that a lot of entrepreneurs are, are turned to us and, and by us, not just Sway, but all their investors, right? The VC community of, you know, for advice and, you know, we can, we can you know, a lot of what we've told our, our companies is, you know, let's make sure we're, we've got runway at least through this year and into 2021. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot about survival right now. Um, it's a different, expect, it's a different yeah. skill set that I think, uh, it's certainly something that I'm trying to level myself up in coefficient, coefficient labs, which is, you know, for people that are really offensive driven, sales driven, push, push, push. I feel like now is a time where you really have to tighten up your defensive skills and, you know, really understand all the elements of the business that potentially, you know, can go wrong. And I, I could imagine, you know, that's a lot of what you're trying to help navigate around is making sure that these companies are as defensible as they can be, because there is so much uncertainty around everything. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, what channels are the most profitable, right? And, and let's cut off the ones that aren't, mm -hmm. um, and then really focus on those. It's, 
you know, cutting back on sales and marketing probably, right? Um, and, and then there's some companies that frankly aren't a strong financial balance sheet, right? And, and can be a little bit more aggressive um, in this time and, and maybe get market share that they otherwise would not have been able to get. Um, you know, you're seeing that with Zoom uh, yeah. and, and a few others, right? Where, you know, this is actually a great time for them to push, you know, if they're in a position uh, to push the pedal down a little bit. Um, not every business is, you know, in that position, both, you know, strategically and financially. Um, and so it's, it really is just a case by case basis of, all right, let's dig in, let's figure out, you know, what works, what's not, where we, where can we cut back on, um, what's strategically the most important, you know, this is where focus is, you know, it's always important. It's it's just paramount now, right. Is, is, you know, cut away anything that is not absolutely paramount to the business. Switching gears uh, away from COVID and, and back into your journey in venture capital, one of the questions that I always love to ask is, what is your favorite aspect of being a VC that you didn't expect going into it? Uh, the constant learning. Um, every day is is something different, right? I'm constantly getting to learn about new companies, new markets, new technologies. Um, it's a treat to go talk to an entrepreneur, regardless of if we invest or not, that just knows their market, right? And and I walk away, frankly, more often than not, I'm the one learning in those uh, situations, right? Because I'm I might be coming at your business for the first time. You've spent you know year, maybe a couple years building this. You know the ins and outs. You're you're going to know your business far better than I do, um, especially when we first meet. Uh, it's not till you know after we've invested and been on the board and worked, you know, together side by side for a couple of years that maybe I know the business is somewhat close to you. Um, and so it's, it's every time I get to meet with entrepreneurs, I get, I'm learning, like they're teaching me. Um, and it's, it's a treat to, to constantly be challenged in that way to constantly be, um, forced to think about new technologies or, you know, if this plays out, what does that mean for in the mm-hmm. future? How do you strategically go about this? What does that mean on the competition side? Like it's, it's a, it's a nonstop thought exercise, uh, which is, uh, I, I love it's, it's one of the best parts of the business. Um, and I'm very fortunate to, to, to be in that position to do, to do that. Um, and I feel like, you know, because they're, giving us that kind of knowledge or, or they're constantly, uh, you know, basically schooling us in, in many ways, uh, you know, when we first meet that, you know, it's on me to be able to provide real feedback and yeah. at least be able to return the favor and give them something. So we always, you know, one thing core tenant is anytime we meet with an entrepreneur, right, we're, you know, even if we pass, we're going to give you, you know, three or four things that we liked about the business and three or four things that, you know, these were the concerns we had that we just couldn't get over. Um, you know, and most entrepreneurs appreciate that every once in a while you get one that, uh, gets upset. And I doesn't um, agree with you, you or it doesn't agree. And I got no problem. If you don't agree, you, 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 you should not agree. If you agree with me that it's a, you know, <laughs> you need to go you should think about that. You, you need to the business, right? You <laughs> yeah. need to go, you need to go find something else, right? You should disagree with me that you, and, and I don't mind the responses that, you know, in a respectful fashion, Hey, I understand your concerns here's, you know, the three reasons why I think we can overcome those challenges, right? And, you know, in, you know, six months from now, I'm going to have proved you wrong. Love it. D- give me that entrepreneur every day. 
Mm -hmm. um, every once in a while, you get the, oh, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, okay, fine. Uh, it is what it is. But most of the time, I'd say, you know, nine out of 10 times, uh, entrepreneurs are really appreciative of just having that kind of feedback. Because um, I don't think you get it that often. Um, you yeah. don't get, you know, the real reason why. And, and, and so now they at least know maybe in the next meeting, you know, oh, I might have these uh, object objections and challenges that I'm going to have to overcome. And maybe I'm better prepared to uh, answer those type of questions in the next meeting. One tip that you gave in one of your last podcasts that I really enjoyed was the concept of like, Sometimes I, I would imagine that founders feel as though they have to close you on the first meeting. They have to get the money on the first meeting versus trying to either not necessarily impress you, but I like this concept of educate you, like really educating you on the problem and piquing your interest. And I, I, I was wondering, maybe you could elaborate more on like why that's yeah. such an important aspect of the, of the fundraise. Yeah. So, you know, we're not going to, you know, maybe an angel investor, right. Uh, but you know, most institutional VCs aren't going to invest in you after one meeting, right. Um, your, your goal is to get to a, get us interested, get us interested enough to do some research or, uh, get us to a second meeting, right. For us, it's, you know, um, very much about establishing a fact pattern of, you know, do you, this is kind of this is why I like accelerators, right? We're all I like meeting with companies, you know, at the beginning of an accelerator, you know, catching up with them, you know, maybe halfway through, and then seeing them in demo day, and all of a sudden now I've got three data points, and even if we don't invest in, then I get an update six months later, uh, and then a year later, and all of a sudden you're ready to raise your Series A, and I've had eight, ten data points of view of how you've executed of you know updates and all that, and and now I can I've got a better picture, and and hopefully you know, that's an interesting picture for me. Um, so, so I, I've never done, uh, update emails to any of, you know, the VCs that we communicate with or work with. Uh, but hearing you say it, I'm thinking to myself, man, Sean, like we've done so much in the last year, we should probably send more updates. Do you find those to be valuable to you when you see people, you know, updating you or is it kind of like, yeah, yeah okay. Especially on companies that, you know, I meet at the seed level, right? And, you know, we do some seed investing, but it's not really our core of what we do, right? Um, and so it's great if, you know, hopefully it's it's as simple as just adding me to a mailing list. Um, you know, it's, it's not a big lift, right? So hopefully it's, um, it, it, let's be clear, this isn't, you know, carve out a custom email for Brett's and, you know, write that to him once a month and, and, and have that be a heavy lift, um, you know, you're probably sending out updates to your core investors. Um, either send us that, or if there's some, you know, confidential information, maybe create a second list that, you know, just, you know, deletes some of that confidential stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but give me a sense of how you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, if the, the metrics are growing, if uh, maybe there was an objection I had, and I wasn't quite you know, I didn't think you'd be able to, if you're a marketplace, I don't think you're going to quite get enough supply on. And it turns out supply is not the issue. Demand is like, oh, that's surprising. Right. And, you know, that'll make me reevaluate, you know, that original discussion we had. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, those sort those sort of updates uh, definitely help. I, I mean, I, you know, whether you love or hate him, I, I know Gary Vanderchuk was, I was recently listening to him do a video and he's like, I changed my mind. You know, like I changed my mind. I had a, 
I had a thought about your business. You've shown me the data and I changed my mind. I now, I now like it and I can imagine those update emails. Sometimes you go, wow, I've, I've actually changed my, my uh, assumption of why this might not work. And now I'm starting to see data. So I'm, I'm definitely seeing the value in thinking about how I can even utilize updates for myself, you know, even, even though so we, I had, I had yeah. that happen to me. I, there was a company and I won't say what they do, but, um, basically it was a marketplace and on, and, and I never thought they'd get supply. Um, I, I, there was just not, that wasn't going to happen. Demand, I could understand, uh, the supply side. I just, I, I didn't think they could actually do it in any kind of scalable way. You know, six, eight months later, it turns out supply they were getting, it, that was ramping up like crazy. The challenge was getting enough enough demand on the other side, um, and it was totally the inverse of what I thought it was going to be. Um, like I said, you know, going back to our earlier part of the conversation, we're wrong a lot, um, and so it made me reevaluate that opportunity in that company. Um, and if if supply is not the problem, if demand is, okay, cool. What does that mean for how you go about marketing in this company? So, yeah, it's really awesome. Uh, Brett, what is one book that you just always think about as like it really influential in your life, whether you give it away as a gift or you happen to reread it, you know, every once in a while, what's a book that you just absolutely love and want to make a shout out for? Yeah. So there's a number of classics, uh, you know, there's zero to one and in innovators dilemma, um, and, and venture deals are just some of the, the early ones I read, uh, that formed a lot about, um, how I thought about the venture industry. Uh, but one of the, I think maybe less known ones, um, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, mm, um, I haven't heard of just that. how you're, yeah, it's a phenomenal book of how your brain, uh, processes and, and makes decisions. Um, and it, it's obviously, it, it, I think it's impactful for anyone, but obviously if you're an investor, um, it's, you know, really impacted how I go about thinking through problems and, um, you know, my initial reactions versus more analytical side. Um, and then along those lines, there's another one that I really like too called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. She's a professional poker player. And it's all about, um, you know, how she makes her decisions at the poker table and how it's much more about the process and not necessarily the final outcome and how you make, you know, good decisions in an uncertain world with imperfect information. Um, and if you make those you make that process good over you know over the long run the numbers will work out in time um both of those are are great books for you know your thought process and and not just investing but uh just you know kind of in life in general cool i can't wait to pick them up um brett what are you most excited about right now <laughs> uh being able to go back out to a restaurant again <laughs> uh you, yeah, I, miss, you I miss going out to dinner man <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, we just eating at home every night is, is not as fun. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, when this all ends and being able to go back out to a restaurant and go out to dinner with friends again. What's your, uh, what's um, your favorite restaurant? I got it. I got to get that while we're on the line here. So yeah, uh, in Culver city, there's an amazing restaurant called hatchet hall. Hatchet uh, hall. Okay. Hatchet hall. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I think that's going to be yeah. a new question I'm going to ask everyone is what's the first you restaurant should. you're going to go to when you get out of this? <laughs> the Hatchet Hall. Yeah. yeah. We actually, we bought a, you know, they're, they're selling, uh, gift cards as a way of, you know, supporting. So we bought a gift card, uh, and yeah, we're going to use that thing as soon as it opens. 
Uh, Brett, I've really enjoyed uh, jamming with you today, man. Uh, where can people find you if they either want to hit you on the socials or email or like what's the best way for, you know, yeah. entrepreneurs or people to refer their, their portfolios to you at? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't post a ton, but I'm always on there kind of just keeping up. So my Twitter, ha Twitter handle is uh, at bmunst. Uh, and then uh, the other great way to get a hold of me is uh, email. So it's brett, uh, B-R-E-T-T, -T, at swayvc.com. Brett, really, really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for joining us here on Demo Day. I'm Sean Goldfadden. This is Demo Day. Demo Day.